It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author and New York Times columnist David Brooks says some of the most challenging years in one's life are in your 20s. Perhaps you're right out of college, he says, and you can do anything. It's an ordeal of freedom. If you have any sort of talent, you're like a stem cell. And your blessing and your curse is that you could turn into absolutely anything. And your blessing and your curse is that the life you've led so far leaves you completely unprepared for the challenges that now face you. In today's show, Brooks goes through the phases of life and encourages you, the listener, to remember what you were doing in those periods. He says looking at one's life now, in the context of these stages, may help you determine what's next. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Brooks calls the 20s the Odyssey years. It comes after the Annunciation and Initiation phases. It's a lonely and hard time. Brooks says the comfort felt in the phase before when a mentor or institution helped develop your interests disappears. People in their Odyssey years start out at the bottom of the ladder, underemployment, bad bosses, temporary internships, periods of wandering. In college, highly educated, highly paid people were paid to tell them how wonderful their thoughts were and to read their writing and pay close attention. When they get out into the world, that's all gone. Luckily, this phase ends and a new commitment-making period begins. As life continues, there are mountains and valleys that shape who we are, until we finally reach what Brooks calls the second mountain. It takes wholeheartedness to truly find peace and happiness, he says, and that doesn't come until later. In this lecture, he talks about the lives of others, but also his own life, and how he's seen growth and challenges throughout these phases. Here's David Brooks. Uh, so when E.O. Wilson, who's a great scientist, was seven years old, uh, his parents were getting divorced, uh, and his folks sent him away to, us, uh, to live with a family in Florida, uh, which with a family he didn't know. And so what he did was, uh, it was a place called Paradise Beach in northern Florida. Uh, and he'd have breakfast with the family, uh, and then he'd go out and walk along the beach to lunch and come back for lunch, and then all afternoon he'd walk along the beach in the afternoon. And in that tumultuous summer, he became fascinated with the wildlife he found on the beach, and it sort of cast a spell on him. He stumbled across a jellyfish and wrote decades later, the creature was astonishing. It existed outside my previous imagination. He came across crabs and needlefish and toadfish and stingrays. And one day he was sitting on the dock with the, his feet dangling in the water, and he saw a gigantic ray, much, much bigger than anything he'd ever seen before, glide silently under his feet. I was thunderstruck, he wrote, and immediately seized with the need to seize this behemoth again, to capture it if I could and to examine it up close. And he wrote years later that when you're a kid, everything looks bigger. I estimate that when I was seven years old, I saw animals at twice the size that I see them now. His family life was falling apart a few hundred miles away, but here he felt a, a curiosity and an intensity and a sense of longing that would last all his life. And a, sort of a naturalist was born. He wrote when he was in his 80s, a child comes to the edge of deep water with a mind prepared for wonder, hands-on experience at the critical time not systematic knowledge is what counts in the making of a naturalist. Better to spend long stretches of time just searching and dreaming. 
And so this is what you might call an enunciation moment. A moment some people have in childhood, some people have later in life, that sort of prefigures everything that comes next. He had this moment of becoming a naturalist, uh, and that would last him the next eight decades. Uh, sometimes early can happen at any time, but it often, I think, involves sort of childlike wonder. I happen to have mine at age seven as well. I read a book called Paddington the Bear uh, and decided at that moment that I wanted to become a writer. And my joke is in high school, I wanted to date some woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. Um, and so I'm talking about this enunciation moment uh, because even th though this is really a talk about things that happen later in life, it's useful for me. If you're a writer, you're just basically working out your shit in public. And so I, it was useful for me to see my life right now in the context of all the stages of life. And so what I'm going to try to do over the next few minutes is run through some of the common stages in life, some of the stages that a lot of us have been through, which I hope put in context the next phase for each of our lives, no matter where we are. Now, so Wilson had his enunciation moment at age seven in Paradise Beach. Something else sort of unfortunate and fortunate happened to him that, that summer. Uh, he was fishing. You know, he was, he'd become, fallen in love with the sea, and he started fishing. And so he fished for a pinfish. And uh, I guess a pinfish is a scaly fish with a long, spiky tail. And when he took the fish off the hook, it flopped out of his hands into his face, and the spike at the end of the tail pierced his right pupil. And he was in excruciating pain. The kid's seven, remember. But he didn't want to leave the sea. So he put the fish back and stayed at the sea all day, came home for dinner, at which time the pain had somewhat subsided, so the family he was with didn't do anything, but within month, he had, months he had lost all the sight in his right eye. So a certain sort of naturalism like birds was not going to be good for him. And so it limited what he did. Uh, and he was walking that same year in Pensacola, and he happened across some fire ants. And he had the same sensation he had when he was looking at the sea, that here was this universe of behavior that fascinated him, that gripped him, that he longed to seize and possess. And he really spent the next seven decades studying bugs and much else and becoming one of the greatest scientists of our country at Harvard. So that was his enunciation moment. Now, we all have moments of wonder and things we're kind of interested in, but the second phase of life is the initiation. There has to be some mentor on some institution that takes your moment of interest and trains you into how to turn it into a life and lifts your standard for how to conduct that wonder in the highest way. Peter Drucker defined leadership as, leadership is not magnetic personality. That can just as well be a glib tongue. It is not making friends and influencing people. That is flattery. Leadership is lifting a person's vision to higher sights, raising a person's performance to a higher standard, and building a personality beyond its normal limitations. And so Wilson found such a man, a man named Philip Darlington, who was a naturalist at Harvard. Darling told, told Wilson, don't stay on the trails when you collect insects. Pick a spot through the jungle and just carve your way through that spot and through a line. And Darlington said, this is going to be hard. And once when Darlington was 39, he was carving a, a trail through the jungle, went across a river, was digging down to dig up a sample of bugs, and a crocodile leapt out of 
the river grabbed Darlington's right side, dragged him into the river. Darlington fought, kicked it, was released. The crocodile grabbed him again, grabbed him down. Darlington escaped again and walked miles back to a hospital while bleeding all the while. But what inspired Wilson was not him getting free. It was his whole bright side of his body was covered in a cast, and he devised for the next three or four months the capacity to drag himself through the jungle using only his left side and to collect bugs with only his left side. And that gave, gave us what I think a lot of us want when we're young, a sense that this is going to be hard. William James went to Chautauqua, which was sort of the aspen of the New York State, and he said, this is great, but kind of unsatisfying. What our human emotions seem to require, James said, is the sight of struggle going on. The moment the fruits are merely being eaten becomes ignoble. Sweat and effort, human nature strain to the utmost and on the rack, yet getting through it alive and then turning back on its success to pursue another struggle more rare and arduous still, this is the sort of thing that inspires us. James summed it all up, that human existence is the same eternal things, some man or woman's pains in pursuit of some exalted ideal. And so Darlington took Wilson and inspired him. And that is what we need through our initiation process. My initiation process came at another institution, not Harvard, but the University of Chicago. My joke about the University of Chicago, it's my favorite line about it, is that it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> uh, and it was foundational, by the way, in the funding of this organization. And I went there, and I was welcomed in. There was, when I went there, there were still some refugees from World War II. And they believed with a fervor, a religious fervor, that the secret keys to life and existence were in certain great books. And they introduced us like, as if walking into an exalted cathedral into the world of the death of Socrates, the fire of Joan of Arc, the passion of Pascal, the mathematician. And they said, you little twerps, you can come at the end of this grand procession. And it was exalted, but it seemed great. And it seemed something we could be a member of. One of the greatest teachers of that time was a guy named Karl Weintraub. And he was a hero to a lot of us. And he wrote an email on his deathbed to my friend Carol Quillen, who was here earlier in the week and is president of Davidson. And he wrote about his experience trying to lift us to be something better than we are. Teaching Western Civ, Weintraub wrote to Carol, seems to confront me all too often with moments when I feel like screaming suddenly, oh God, my dear student, why cannot you see that this matter is a real, real matter? often a matter of the very being for the person and the historical men you are looking at, or are at least supposed to be looking at. If you do not come to feel any of the love that Pericles feels for his city, how can you understand his, his funeral oration? If you cannot fathom the power and the drive in thinking that he has a special mission, how can you understand the death of Socrates? How can you grasp anything of the problem of the Galatian community without sensing in one bones the problem of worrying about God's acceptance? Sometimes when I have spent an hour or more pouring all my enthusiasm and sensitivities into an effort to tell these stories in the fullness in which I see and experience them, I feel drained and exalted, exhausted. I think it works on the student, but I do not really know. And anybody who has taught knows that one of the tragedies of teaching is that sometimes professors pour more into a class than the students are able to receive. 
But in truth, what Weintraub was doing to those of us lucky enough to go through this institution, this initiation process, was more like planting. The teachers like Weintraub were inserting seeds that would burst forth years and decades later when the realities of life called them forth. And what they really did was not to give us information. And I think what Darlington gave to Wilson was not information. It was to give him some, or some knowledge of what was worth wanting. I think that's what schools do best. The schools that are really successful, what should you want and what's the highest thing you could possibly want? And so what I learned at Chicago, I think, was the desire, still working on it, to see reality. Seeing reality seems like a very straightforward thing. You just look out and see it. But I live in the world of politics, and people don't see reality straightforward. They project it through their own desires, their own wishes, their own narcissism, their own depression, their fear, and their insecurity. John Ruskin once wrote, the more I think of it, I find this conclusion more impressed upon me that the greatest thing a human soul ever does is to see something and to tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds of people can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. And so what our learning institutions do, and the reason we go to places like this, not only to know what the people are saying, but to be around people who model seeing reality clearly. And in my education, Shakespeare, think of Shakespeare seeing reality. Think of Hume, Socrates, George Eliot, George Orwell, Hannah Arendt. When you see reality, what you are planted with an ability to be intellectually honest, but also planted with an ability to peer more deeply into your own self. The poet Rilke wrote, I am learning to see. I don't know why it is, but everything penetrates more deeply into me, but does not stop at the place where until now it always used to finish. I have an inner self of which I was ignorant. Everything goes thither now. What happens there, I do not know. And I think a great institution of learning gives students, that nobody knows at that age what your inner self is like, but you get a glimpse that it's there. And you get a sense that you're gonna fill that up. And so that, for me, Chicago, Darlington for Wilson, I hope you can all think of examples of institutions that gave you your initiation. You're welcome into a craft. You're welcome into an industry. You're welcome into a style of life. Now that happens when you're young, and then typically we blow it. We're not really ready for what is being taught to us, and we have to make our own mistakes. The most important things in life are not learned, they're experienced. And so you have to go then to what I think of as the third phase in life, after the enunciation and the initiation, the stage in your 20s, what I call the odyssey years. And this is sort of the ordeal of freedom, when you're just getting out of college and suddenly you can do anything. If you have any sort of talent, you're like a stem cell. And your blessing and your curse is that you could turn into absolutely anything. And your blessing and your curse is that the life you've led so far leaves you completely unprepared for the challenges that now face you. As you go through school, you're le le living station to station. You got this test, this homework assignment, this degree, this application process. You get out of school in your 20s, there are no more stations. It's just open seas. So instead of looking in front of you for what do I do next, your challenge in your 20s is to look for the far horizon and try to define what you're pointing at. And that is a phenomenally hard problem. It's a hard problem because we don't really train people to do that very well. 
It's a hard problem, I think, these days because our culture is a recipe for making people individualistic, and it's a recipe for making it really hard to find out what your purpose is. I summarize the problems in our culture in a typically pseudo-intellectual uh, University of Chicago way by saying that we made three bad philosophical bets in our culture. We chose Hobbes when we should have chosen Durkheim. That is to say, we chose to think of ourselves as individuals when we're really relationships. We're too individualistic and not communitarian. Second, we chose Descartes when we should have chosen Augustine. We think of ourselves primarily as cognitive feeling creatures when we're primarily emotional longing creatures. And third, we chose Bentham when we should have chosen Frankel. We, we think our lives are organized around pleasure and pain, but really our seeker's desire and our deepest desire is for purpose and meaning. And if you grow up in a culture like that, it's just really hard because you're not communal enough, you're not emotionally intelligent enough, and you're not purpose conscious enough. And so the people in their odyssey years start out at the bottom of the ladder, underemployment, bad bosses, temporary internships, periods of wandering, in college, highly educated, highly paid people were paid to tell them how wonderful their thoughts were and to read their writing and pay close attention. When they get out into the world, that's all gone. And so I find the 20s is a lonely and a hard time. We have in this country, I think, a telos crisis. We have a bunch of people in their 20s who graduated but who don't really know what their purpose is. And then when the first failure comes, when the moment of wandering, the emotional breakup comes, they collapse. Nietzsche says, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know what your purpose is, you can endure all the setbacks, but you don't know if what your why is, then the setbacks really decimate you. And so the young people, and this is not generational, this is true for all of us when we're in our 20s, if you're in a certain educational class, what you try to do is you compensate for your lack of purpose by building success upon success. The writer Matthias Dalsgaard describes what he calls the insecure overachiever. Such a person, he writes, must have no stable or solid foundation to build upon, and yet nonetheless tries to build his way out of his problem. It is an impossible situation. You can't compensate for having a foundation made of quicksand by building a new story on top of it. But this person takes no notice, and hopes the problem down in the foundations won't be found out if only the construction work keeps on going. But I think eventually the foundational problems show up. And they show up most profoundly in a sadness that was, I think, best described by David Foster Wallace back in 1996. He writes, it's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself in a kind of lostness. This is a generation that has an inheritance of absolutely nothing as far as meaningful moral values is concerned. And so the 20s is, in many ways, for all of us, whether today or in previous generations, a glorious fun time. But I find, especially now, it's an extremely challenging time for a lot of people. And, of, and it's easier in the educated class, and, but it's much harder further down below. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. On the show today, David Brooks in a talk called The Second Mountain, The Next Big Challenge in Your Life. Another episode you should check out is a conversation with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg says she and her female colleagues bring a unique perspective to the courtroom. We also bring to the table 
experience that the men don't have because we've grown up female. Find our discussion with the second woman justice confirmed to the nation's highest court by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts. Now back to our featured talk with David Brooks. But fortunately, often in this day, by the end of the 20s, you hit your fourth phase, which is the phase of commitment making, the phase you might call coming to Sinai. At a certain point, you get tired of freedom. You get tired of keeping your options open. You get tired of bad dates. You get tired of all those weekends where you packed it full of material, but you can't remember any of it by Wednesday. You yearn for that unity that you see in other people. There's this pastor in the 1950s called Harry Emerson Fosdick who wrote, a real person achieves a high degree of unity within himself. He does not remain split and scattered, but gets himself together into wholeness and coherence. And when you're, you're keeping your options open and you're spreading things far and wide, what you're doing is you're living in the indeterminacy of your own passing feelings and your own changeable heart. Life is a series of temporary moments, not an accumulating flow, You're never all in for one thing or another because you're always looking for some other possibility. You lay waste to your powers, scattering them in all directions. And so at a certain point, people say, enough. I'm going to start making choices, and I'm going to start making commitments. And what happens is, I think at a certain stage in life, your unconscious definition of freedom changes. When you're raised in your 20s to the sense of freedom as, let's keep my options open, but then you, you shift from freedom from to freedom to, to a sense I want to have the freedom to do what I want to do. Liberate, you liberate yourself to a higher freedom. And that means you have to take away some of your options. You have to say a lot of no's for just a few yeses. If you have to chain yourself to years of piano practice to have the freedom to really play, you have to go from a life of open options to sweet compulsions. My favorite definition of freedom is from Tim Keller, Freedom is not so much the absence of restraints, it's finding the right ones. And so at a certain point, I think for a lot of people, late in their 20s, early in their 30s, they want to find something they can really chain themselves to. And fortunately, at this moment, life has a tendency to help you out. At this moment, often in late 20s and early 30s, by some fate, you're brought together with something that kind of arrests you and interests you you have a chance for sort of another enunciation moment. And often the first commitment that comes into people's minds is a vocation they find they really love. Sometimes it's a spouse, or they find a man or a woman, and they think, oh, that person's kind of interesting. My wife told me this story that I love to retell. She had a hairdresser in Houston named David. And David runs a hair salon called Attitudes of Paris. And there was a young woman who was a pianist in Houston and she was uh, moving to San Francisco to be with her fiance. And she thought she'd get her hair cut one last time before she moved to uh, San Francisco. She, she went to Attitudes of Paris. And she walks in, this first time she's ever been there, she looks over and sees this guy, David, cutting somebody else's hair. She goes into the changing room, call, puts on the gown, and calls her mom, and says, you know, I've just seen the man I'm actually gonna marry. <laughs> so she goes out into the chair, and she's sitting down, and they're chit-chatting, and David's cutting their hair. And he says, well, what's your life story? And she says, well, you know, I'm a pianist. I'm engaged to this guy in San Francisco. I'm about to move out there. 
but I won't do it if you'll marry me. <laughs> and so David told my wife, I looked down at my scissors. I never felt more free than I did at that instant. And he said, it's a deal. <laughs> and they've been married 18 years, by the way. So that's a pretty dramatic story. <laughs> but all of us have moments of where we happen to sit on the right subway car. I met a guy who owns the Carolina Panthers. I think his name is Richardson. He was hitchhiking, and some chick pulled over and picked him up. And they've been married for 60 years. <laughs> and you have these freakish things. You just get involved. And so this uh, love can strike anywhere. And when it strikes, you have this vague sense. Bruce Springsteen said of his smash hits that it feels completely new and as if it were there the whole time. And we all meet people who are completely new and thrilling, but it feels there the whole time. Somehow something answers something deep inside of us. My uh, colleague, April Lawson, said to me over a conversation at the Times one day, we were all missing something as children, and as adults, we're willing to put up with a lot in order to get it. It's very profound. She's like 28 when she said that. Uh, and there's something unconscious that latches into things. And we begin, in, say, in that person or in that job, we begin to project some good, nice future. And then we begin to, we want to learn about this thing. Something's interesting. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Love is a process of intention. And David and this woman just were attent attentive to each other. They were suddenly interested. And we've all been in what happens next. You want to begin to learn. So you go out on a date, and you find these miraculous coincidences. You don't like foie gras? I don't like foie gras. <laughs> Amazing. We should get married. Uh, you don't like a $6 cupcake? Me neither. Toilet paper over the top. Uh, we get it. And so you begin to want to attach. And you get into a, a dialogue. You get into episodes and a reciprocity of greater and greater vulnerability. And then there's the inflammation, the desire of completely falling in love. And the act of falling in love is the act of making commitments. And this is one of the peak phases of a life, the commitment-making phase. In my view, most of us make four big commitments in our lives. To a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and to community and friends. And the success and fulfillment of our lives depend on how well we choose these commitments and then how well we execute upon them. And so what is a commitment? A commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. Orthodox Jews love their God, but they're going to keep kosher just in case. <laughs> and the commitment making is the process of totally devoting yourself to another thing and making a promise. Making the kind of promise that Ruth made to Naomi, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. A commitment forms our identities. When you ask people who you are, what do you do, what you learn about them and the way they define themselves is what they commit themselves to. To a vocation, to a passion, to a community, to a spouse, to a set of friends. Commitments form our character. Every time you make a promise to something, and every time you keep that promise, it's like spokes in a wagon wheel, you strengthen the spokes. 
Every time you break a promise, you remove a spoke, and it's more likely the whole thing will collapse on ourselves. And so in the making of our commitments, which for a lot of us happens in our 30s, you're doing the act of what I'm going to call in this talk, climbing the first mountain. What is the first mountain? Climbing the first mountain is trying to answer the question, what makes me significant? How can I support myself? Who will go with me? It's the act of winning some success, getting a reputation for being good at your job, winning some praise and recognition. It's about admiring and acquiring. The first mountain in our lives is about establishing an identity, creating boundary markers, seeking security, and linking yourself to significant projects and causes. One of the nice descriptions of a first mountain is written by a hero of mine, George Orwell. He wrote an essay called Why I Write. And he was very honest. Why is he writing? One, sheer egotism. I want to seem clever. I want to get talked about. Two, aesthetic enthusiasm. Perception of beauty, the pleasure of the words. Take some pleasure in the job you do. Three, historical impulse. The desire to see the world accurately. Fourth, political purpose. Just want to shift the world a little in the way I'd like it to shift. Fifth, making some money. Sixth, getting invited to the inner rings of society. Earning your way to Aspen. <laughs> and these are the sorts of things we do on our first mountain. And one of the things about the first mountain, a lot of it depends on how people are perceiving you. Other people's judgments of you make a big difference to how well you think you're doing. As a one psychologist wrote, the world is an encoded message to me, a statement about me, about how I am valued and how I am to comport myself. I am what happens or happens to me. And so that's the first mountain. There's nothing wrong with it. We all want to build success. Somebody I wrote said there are four levels of happiness. There's material pleasure, which is having a nice car, nice food, nice sex. There's comparative happiness, ego comparative happiness, which is about status, winning victories, making your mark in the world. There's generativity, the pleasure you get from giving back to the community. And fourth, there's transcendence, the joy you feel from being connected to unconditional love, truth, justice, and home. The first mountain is about one and two. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But I think we all know that the things you seek in the first mountain are not quite fulfilling, those first two happinesses. Uh, and that's because you can never be wholly focused. To be at peace and to be really happy is to be wholehearted. On the first mountain, you can never be seriously wholehearted because you've always got one eye on your conception of yourself and how other people are seeing you. And so yourself gets in the way of being wholehearted into something else. And so that brings us to the sixth phase in life, which David Bradley talked about earlier this week, which is the valley phase. You get atop your first mountain, and you think, not quite satisfying. Or on the climb to your, up your first mountain, you fail, and you get knocked off your mountain. Or some life event that happens that throws you off the mountain, maybe the death of a child, an illness that brings you to the brink of your grave. And then you get a sensation that all your life somehow is not, that this is not actually your mountain. There's some crisis here that you can't solve on this mountain with your current skill set that are required for that mountain. And so the classic case of a guy who realized that his first mountain was the wrong mountain was Leo Tolstoy. And it happened in him in midlife. But I want to emphasize when I talk about these phases, 
Life can happen at any time. Some people hit their valley at 20 or at 70. For Tolstoy, it was about in his 30s. He, in his first mountain, wanted to be a great writer. He did pretty well. Wrote Anna Karenina, War and Peace, pretty good. But he found it all meaningless at a certain point. He wrote, the only faith I had was faith in perfection. This is a passage that resonates completely with my students. I, but I could not have said what perfection consisted of or what its purpose might be. I tried to achieve intellectual perfection. I studied everything I could, everything that life gave me a chance to study. I tried to perfect my will and set up rules for myself that I endeavored to follow. I strove for physical perfection by doing all the exercises to develop strength and agility and by undergoing all the hardships that discipline of endurance and perseverance could preside. I took all this to be perfection. The starting of it all was moral perfection, but this was soon replaced by a belief in overall perfection, the desire to be better not in, only in my own eyes, but in the eyes of other people. And so he was trying to be a perfect person. That's the first mountain. But he began to realize that he was trying to become this writer who was going to change the world. He began to have a little uh, loss of a little faith in the other writers. They didn't seem so great. Then his brother died an agonizing death without un ever understanding why he had lived and died. And then he went to Paris. And in Paris, he saw an execution. And he wrote, when I saw how the head was severed from the body and heard the thud of each part as it fell into a box, I understood, not with my intellect, but with my whole being, that no theories of rationality of existence or of progress could justify such an act. I realized that if all the people in the world from the day of creation found this to be necessary according to whatever theory, I knew that it was not necessary and that it was wrong. Therefore, my judgments must be based on what is right and necessary and not on what people say and do. That is to say, he became aware that truth is transcendent. There are some things that are just wrong, and there are some things that are right, beyond the realm of society, beyond the realm of culture, beyond the realm of norms. There's something universal, what Immanuel Kant calls the moral law within. And when he sensed that there was something transcendently true or false, he came to see all his desires on the, the, this world, other than finding what was true and false, were unnecessary. He wrote, my life came to a stop, but there was no life in me because I had no desire whose satisfaction I would have found reasonable. If I wanted something, I knew beforehand it did not matter whether I got it or not. All that mattered was finding the transcendent truth. So he grew sick of life, he put ropes aside, he put guns aside because he didn't want to kill himself. And as he thought about it, he, was, he realized that the rational knowledge that he had built up all his life, the goal of worldly perfection that he had built up all his life was not the right goal. I was inevitably led to recognize a different type of knowledge, an irrational type, which all of humanity has had, faith. Faith which provides us with the possibility of living, Wherever there is life, there is faith. Since the origin of mankind has made it possible for us to live, the main characteristics of faith are everywhere and the same. So he found a new set of desires to lead a simple life, to go down into himself, and to, he found a faith, the Christian faith. So he went down into his valley. And the paradox of the valley is you see more from the bottom of the valley than you do from the top. 
Paul Tillich, the 1950s theologian, said, when you're in those moments of suffering, when you're down in your valley, you're reintroduced to yourself and you're reminded you're not, you're not who you thought you were. What moments of suffering does is they carve what, he's, what Tillich called a hole in the, what you thought was the basement of your soul. And they reveal a cavity below and they reveal a cavity below that. So in those moments of suffering, I don't know if you've, I'm sure we've, we've all had them, we've all felt them, you see that there are pieces of yourself further down than you knew existed. And then the next thought that comes to you is, well, how can I fill those pieces? I'm a deeper person than I ever thought I was. How can I get the joy that will satisfy the inner pieces? And that's basically what Tolstoy had. He was living in this world. He became aware of a transcendence. He became aware of a hunger, which was not a material hunger, or even a heart hunger, but which was soul hunger. And he then said, how can I find that kind of pleasure that will fill that piece of myself? Wondering what to read in the new year? Looking for that book you just can't put down? Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute, just came out with a curated list of mission-driven fiction. The list of 20 books about incarceration, immigration, cultural identity, and more is the long list for the organization's inaugural literary prize. Listen to an interview with Aspen Words Executive Director Adrian Brodeur on our sister podcast, Aspen Insight. She talks about the books on the list and how one will be chosen this year for the $35,000 prize. Search Aspen Insight on Apple Podcasts. In our featured talk, we've reached the second mountain. David Brooks explains. When you get to that second mountain, you have a new set of desires. You come to the realize that first spot, mountain was nice. Maybe I'll go back there and struggle for success and money and reputation, all this. But this is my real mountain. The first mountain is sort of external. It's about external things. The second mountain is more internal. The first mountain is about admiring and acquiring. The second mountain is about pouring forth into something else. The first mountain solidifies the ego, so you have a stable sense of self. The second mountain is defeating the ego. The first mountain is elitist, climbing. The second mountain is egalitarian, going down. The first mountain is getting up to Aspen. The second is about taking what you have and taking, going out into the world. The first is about level one of two of happiness, material pleasure and status. The second is about levels three and four happiness, generativity, giving back, and transcendence. And so when you, you reach this point in your life uh, where you have the advantages of sort of knowing who you are, maybe having some financial security, and you're really now ready for the big risks. Karl Barth wrote, the sowing is behind, now is the time to reap. The run has been taken, now is the time to leap. Preparation has been made. Now is the time for the venture of the work itself. And in your second mountain, you have some of the structures of your first mountain. There's an annunciation moment, maybe at the bottom of some moment of suffering or some nice moment where you think, you know, I'd really pour, like to pour myself into this act of service, this school, this community, this person, this cause. 
And then there's an, the initiation process. You need somebody, even on the second mountain, some institution to lead you to your higher self. I would, one of the nicest things that happened to me this year, a lot of nice things happened to me this year, but maybe fifth or sixth, I was on a show I hope some of you have listened to, Krista Tippett's show, and I've only done it twice, and I did it seven years ago and I did it this year, and after the show, Krista Tippett said to me, you're so different. I've never seen anybody change so much. And that was a nice moment in my life because I think it meant I was at least getting to the bottom of my second mountain. And I had the fortune of, of having an initiator. I got married seven weeks ago. Uh, she's sitting somewhere over there. Uh, and my wife, Anne, has this to show that life is never formulaic. She did her second mountain first. And so when it comes to the spiritual depth, the spiritual growth, the emotional resilience, the emotional outpouring, she's become my mentor and my leader in that. And Augustine said, uh, you ought to be careful about what you love but be, you be, because you become what you love. Well, I hope so. <laughs> and so you begin to think about it, and I've begun to think about the second mountain. What does it look like? It involves that initiation, that enunciation, the, the knowledge that you're on it. But it also be, involves relinquishing things. There's a Franciscan monk named Richard Rohr who says, when you're on your second mountain, you've got to say farewell to your loyal soldier. Your loyal soldier was the guy who got you up the first mountain. And one of the features of the loyal soldier was he's genial and accommodating. He wants to please everybody. Uh, psychologist James Hollins says the accommodating reflex so necessary for the adaptation of the child requires a daily sacrifice of integrity as an adult. That need to please, which was useful on the way up the first mountain, destroys your integrity as an adult. Then there's an embrace that the world on the second man mountain is more enchanted than anything on the first mountain. It's, you're not just living in prosaic reality. Here's Hollis, that psychologist again. We learn in this part of life that life is much riskier, more powerful, more mysterious than we had ever thought possible. While we are rendered more uncomfortable by this discovery, it is humbling. The world is more magical, less predictable, more autonomous, less controllable, more varied, less simple, more infinite, less knowable, more wonderfully troubling than we could have imagined or been able to tolerate when we are young. And so there's an idea that the world is iconoclastic, reality is iconoclastic. There's myth, there's spirit, there's emotion. It's not only about intellect, but also about heart and soul. You learn also that on your second mountain, the techniques you used to get up the first mountain suddenly don't work here. Often it's the reverse techniques. Not mastery, but obedience to something else. Not being loud, but being silent. One writer wrote, for the greatest things in life are accomplished in silence, not in the clamor and display of superficial eventfulness, but in the deep clarity of inner vision, in the almost imperceptible start of a decision. When you climb the first mountain, you're using an economic logic. Input leads to output, effort leads to reward. But when you're in a second mountain, you're using a moral logic, which is filled with inversions. You have to give to receive, you have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. And you have to fulfill yourself. You have to forget yourself. 
And so the second mountain is filled with a different spirit. Now, what does it look like? Well, some people, and we all know them, they go to Tibet and they start meditating. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, uh, it, uh, and in fact, it's true if you look at the lives of most of the great spiritual leaders in the traditions, whether it's Buddha, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, the Hindu sadhus, they left town. They, went, they just got out of town. And they went somewhere far away. And so some people, when they say they're on their second mountain, they go totally far away. Some people have an experience that changes them uh, and puts them on their second mountain almost against their will. And so one of the things you notice about a lot of people uh, who've been to prison, especially writers who've been to prison, they, le they left their first mountain, they were dragged into prison, they came out fundamentally different. You think of Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn, Mandela, Havel, Viktor Frankl, if you saw Theo Padnos earlier this week. And what happens is when they go into prison, they discover that all the material things they had on their first mountain were taken away, and they discover it didn't really hurt all that much. And they discover that the, the stuff that's inside is actually the reality they want to cultivate. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a psychologist in the 30s. He was taken to Auschwitz, and he realized, you know, all my life I've been asking, what do I want from life? And then he realized, hey, I'm in Auschwitz. This wasn't really it. <laughs> but this is what life was asking of me. And so he said, listen, I'm here in Auschwitz. I'm a psychologist. I'm going to study suffering. And so he did a study of suffering. And he asked the question, why do some people die uh, after a month here, but some people live four years here? And he discovered that those who survived had made a loving commitment to something outside the camps. One of Frankel's friends in the camps said to him one day, listen, if I don't get back to my wife, and if you should see her again, then tell her that I have talked of her daily and hourly. Second, tell her I've loved her more than anyone. Third, the short time I've been married to her outweighs everything, even all we have gone through here. And what Frankel discovered, and he wrote this book, which I hope a lot of you have read, Man's Search for Meaning, which is that this second mountain, this search for meaning, is the fulfilling search. And he found a woman who was dying on a nursery, on a bed in the, in the nursery or infirmary. And she told him, I am grateful fate has hit me so hard. In my former life, I was spoiled, and I did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. And in the, in the, on the bed, she'd only had one person, or one thing, living thing she could speak to. And that was the small chestnut tree out her window. And she said, this tree is the only friend I have here. I often speak to this tree. And Frankel said to her, well, does the, spree, does the tree ever talk back to you? And she said, yes, it talks to me. And he said, well, what does it say? And she said, the tree says to me, I am here, I am here, I am life, I'm eternal life. And that's a sense of transcendent connection, even while everything else has been taken away and she's just stuck there on a bed. And so prisoners often go through that. And you see people who've had it taken away. Some people are on their second mountain. They just stay in the spot they were, but they do it differently. A, a legend and one of the pillars of this community is a woman named Linda Resnick with her husband, Stuart. She owns all the pistachios you've been eating this week, the palm juices, the Fiji water. And so she was in the Central Valley of California. And she, was, she and her husband, Stuart, were farming. And they were making all these very fine products. 
And now what she does is she creates schools there, medical centers there, community centers there, camps and playgrounds. It's the same spot she always knew, but now she is pouring herself, not taking, only taking stuff out of the ground there, but pouring herself into the people who do the farming there. And when you see Lure, Linda and Stuart and you talk to them about this, they can barely talk about their actual business. They want to talk about the health centers. And this, these are people who are in their second mountain. And there's a fire and purity and goodness in their eyes that you can see is totally fulfilling. And that's an example of people who stayed where they were, but they do it differently. My friend David Bradley here in the front row owns The Atlantic a fine publication, second best publication in the country. Uh, and if you saw him speak, he, but he also frees hostages from the Middle East. And that's a bit of David's second mountain. Lincoln, who's the classic guy who was on the second mountain while staying in the same job, stayed in politics. But if you want to know the humiliation, the, uh, the humility, the surrender, and the grace of somebody who has achieved a spiritual depth, read the second inaugural. When uh, Lincoln was fighting the Civil War, his general was General McClellan. And Lincoln wanted McClellan to fight a little harder. And he wanted McClellan to come in and have a meeting, but McClellan wouldn't come into the White House. So Lincoln went to McClellan's house. And he went into the living room and he sat down and the butler said, I'm sorry, General McClellan is out. And Lincoln said, okay, I'll wait. So he waited a little while. McClellan came in the back door and went up to his room. And the butler said, he's come in, he, he may be tired, but he'll change and go see you. Lincoln waits there for 45 minutes, and finally the butler comes down, and the butler says, I'm sorry, General McClellan is too tired to see you. And so this guy's the President of the United States sitting in the living room, and he was with his assistant, John Hay, and said, this is an outrage. He's insulting you. And Lincoln said, I'll sit here all day if I can get him to fight harder. <laughs> and that's a man who had put his ego aside and it was an act of service and obedience. And so what you see in a lot of people, they've made the same four commitments, the same marriage, the same job, the same faith, the same town, but their instead of trying to master their commitments, the commitments have become their master. And their commitments have pruned them to be the kind of people they have to be. And I think this is part of the process of being on your second mountain. The penultimate thing I'll mention is what I'll call leaving Aspen. And let me be clear exactly what I mean, because there's nothing wrong with Aspen. But to get here and to build a life that makes you comfortable here and to thrive here, you have to learn certain rules, certain ways of comporting yourself, certain ways of behaving, certain ways of networking, certain ways of relating to one another. And I happen to notice on this mountain that if somebody introduces a personal note into a conversation, within two minutes, somebody else will turn it into a public note. That is to say, if somebody says something intimate, people get a little nervous about that. It's sort of a social violation. So we want to talk about global warming. <laughs> and we're more comfortable when talking to each other about talking about public affairs than affairs of the heart. And that's because we, a lot of our certain professions are a little emotionally detached. And I think to really succeed in the second mountain, you have to get out of this community into communities where you can't get away with that. And it happened to me, I'm involved in a community where I have dinner every Thursday with a bunch of 20 to 24 year old kids from DC. And the first day I went into this community of kids, uh, and there were maybe 20 or 30 of them at a dinner any given time, and I met a kid named Ed, and I held up my hand to shake his hand, 
And he said, we don't really shake hands here, we hug here. And so he embraced me in a hug, and all the kids embraced me in a hug, and I've been going back almost every Thursday for three years, and I can't get away with my old crap. <laughs> and what they give to us is a complete intolerance of social distance. They force you to get into the intimate relationship building business. And frankly, I went with Linda out to the Central Valley, into the preschools, into the hospitals, and a lot of the people out there, mostly Latino, they force you into a second intimacy. And they force you to open your heart to get out of the comfortable ways you're doing and to actually dance in public. And they give you, in, in the second mountain, I think when you go through that process, the ego is overthrown, you're not at stake anymore, you get the pleasure of gift love, of agape, which is the unconditional willing of good for the other, the equal regard for the well-being of the other, the passionate service and open sacrifice for the sake of the other. When you look at people and you're there far down the second mountain, they just have this radiant inner light. My favorite example, I was in Frederick, Maryland with a bunch of ladies aged probably 60 to 80 who teach immigrants English and how to read. They just radiated a patience, a goodness, a kindness. They made you feel better about yourself. And there's a certain sort of joy in that. And so when you look at these people, they just radiate joyfulness. So I'm going to end by just talking about what joy is, the thing we're all shooting for at the end of the day. First, the first thing when you think about joy, it's moving in unison with other people. At every celebration, in every society, when they're, doing, when they're celebrating, they're doing rhythmic dance. They're dancing around a fire, they're dancing in a synagogue hall, they're dancing at a party. Movement with others. One of my professors at Chicago was a guy named William McNeil. And McNeil experienced that joy while he was serving the army in World War II. He wrote, words are inadequate to describe the emotion aroused by the prolonged movement in unison that drilling involved. A sense of pervasive well-being is what I recall. More specifically, a strange sense of perverse enlargement, a sort of swelling out, becoming bigger than life, thanks to participation in a collective ritual. The second thing joy consists of is that kind of group movement in pursuit of an ideal, in pursuit of something that satisfies our moral yearning. A few more quotations. This is from Rabbi Wolf Kelman, who was marching to Selma with Martin Luther King. We felt connected in song to the transcendental, the inevitable. We felt triumph and celebration. We felt that things change for the good and nothing is congealed forever. That was the warmest transcendental spiritual experience. Meaning and purpose and mission were beyond exact words. Meaning was the feeling, the song, the movement, the overwhelming spiritual fulfillment. When you think of joy, it's the place where people meet. It's the place where a part of yourself merges with something outside yourself. The poet David White. Joy is a meeting place of deep intentionality and self-forgetting. The bodily alchemy of what lies inside in communion with what formerly seemed to be outside. Dance, laughter, affection, skin touching skin, singing in the car, music in the kitchen, the companionable presence of a daughter, the sheer intoxicating beauty of the world inhabited as an edge between what we had previously thought was us and we thought was other than us becomes one. And that's the nice 
wearing down of boundaries. And this is what you think you see when you see people sort of at the peak of their second mountain. It's not that their desires have been satisfied, but they're all desire. It's not I want, it's just pure want. They found something that's truly meaningful to them and truly important to them. And the self has been left behind and they just long to be more and more serving that thing. One of my heroes is St. Augustine who lived 1,500 years ago. And he said, late have I loved you. A beauty so ancient and so new, late have I loved you. Lo, before you were within, but I was outside seeking you outside. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back from far from you, those things which would have no being were they not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished a fragrance, I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burn for your peace. And I think that's what you see in people when they're on the top of the second mountain. Something they love has lavished them with its fragrance, and they gasp. Some commitment they've made makes them hunger to fulfill it. There's some faithfulness to something they really care about that they want to live out. And that's the second mountain. Thank you. David Brooks is a longtime op-ed columnist for The New York Times. He teaches at Yale University and has written several books, including The Road to Character. Brooks is also a commentator on the PBS NewsHour and NPR's All Things Considered. Today's lecture was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.